Welcome back to Cognitive Evolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. So this week's guest is Dr. Julia Shaw. She's a psychological scientist at University College London, and she's the author of a couple best-selling books. Most recently um, is Making Evil, and she's uh, sort of her research career has focused on mainly criminal psychology and how we misremember uh, important events and report those, especially in a court of law, as well as uh, sort of investigating the psychological origins of evil and, and how we should just make sense of the presence of evil actions in our world. And uh, I'm happy to report that I think she probably just eclipsed Paul Bloom as the most interesting interview I've done to date on this show. And uh, I, I think you'll find that she's extremely impressive to listen to, both just in her general understanding of her topics of interest, but also in her, in her breadth of the way she engages intellectually with the world and just the profound sense of curiosity about so many different things uh, and both in a rigorous scientific as well as um, thoughtful humanistic sort of way. And I find it a, a version of, of scholarship which is extremely impressive and um, I, I think you'll find that as well. And so we cover a ton of different topics and a, a lot of it is, sort of comes back to, to reading in many cases and different, different kinds of books that have influenced Julia throughout her, her career. And, um, you know, we, we, we talk about her research, her writing process. We talk about, uh, of course, coronavirus, which is the sort of context in which this is happening. This was actually recorded a, about a week ago or so, probably maybe a couple weeks by the time uh, this comes out. And uh, everything was sort of in flux for both of us. Julia was in the UK where she's based, and I had just left there. So usually that's where I'm based, but I had sort of absconded to Asia to try and be with my girlfriend. Uh, unfortunately, that didn't work out because of logistics uh, sort of reasons, but now I'm back in the US. And so anyway, a sort of constantly shifting environment to make sense of there. But uh, at any rate, it's a very interesting conversation. Uh, I really enjoyed having it and I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. So um, of course you can follow me as always on Twitter at Cody Commerce or through my newsletter uh, which you could find at codycommerce.com slash newsletter. And go ahead and check out Julia on Twitter as well. And uh, also uh, take a look at her books. So uh, I'll go ahead and uh, wrap up my end here so we can get to the very interesting stuff that Julia has said. So um, like I said, it was a really fun interview and I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. So without any further ado, here is Dr. Julia Shaw. Right, so uh, having trouble sleeping with the pandemic and everything? Yeah, well, and also just I sometimes, basically if I get out of routines um, and have meetings outside of the house, I start to drift later and later into the night. Um, and so this is going to be an interesting time for my sleep patterns. <laughs> oh, so you mean you mean there's something that's breaking your current routines right now? There happens to be uh, a world event that that seems to be throwing you off your your normal schedule. Yeah, no, I, I I don't know. Like, have you have you heard anything in the news? I, I can't wrap my head around what it might <laughs> oh, be. Oh my god, I actually I actually uh, I got the hell out of England. Where'd you go? I'm in Singapore right now. Really? <laughs> yeah. So it's 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 a complicated story, but the the cliff notes of it are is that 
my girlfriend is from Vietnam, and she was uh, in uh, Paris finishing up uh, a job there, and she came to, to be with me in England, and then the whole coronavirus thing broke out, and we were, we were pretty on top of, of, of watching it and watching everyone's response to it. And we saw what was going on in the UK, we saw what was going on in Europe, we saw what was going on in the US, and we're like, we're going to get the hell out of here and go to Asia, where they actually have shit under control. Because if you look at the numbers, it's Singapore and Vietnam and Hong Kong and, and, and Taiwan that are, are doing pretty well with things. And uh, yeah, so uh, then for complicated reasons, she went to Vietnam to be quarantined in a government hospital for 14 days. And then I ended up in Singapore to try and avoid that. So... Oh wow! So are you back together, or is she still in Vietnam? No, I, I'm doing I'm doing self-imposed, you know, isolation in Singapore, and she's she's in Vietnam, uh, in in this 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 you know hospital, and uh, I'm trying to avoid the hospital situation if possible, and um, after 14 days, because that will have given me, uh, you know, that birth in between going into Vietnam and being in Europe, um, that they should let me in. Okay. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, what a time. Yeah. No. It's. Uh, I. You know. I read the the plague by Albert Camus recently. Okay. And one of the things that stuck with me about that is that um, the devastation emotionally in that book, it, it 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 doesn't just come from the death, though that that's definitely a part of it. It comes from the the separation. Uh, of loved ones and and people who otherwise live their lives together mm. you know um yeah so uh but that being said it's uh it's it's warm here it's beautiful it's nice and if i'm gonna be self self-isolated I, I, <laughs> it's probably uh more enjoyable to do it here than in, in dreary england although it's currently sunny oh that's yesterday nice. i went for a walk around my garden oh uh, that is lovely that is lovely. I am I am one of the lucky ones in London that I actually have a garden and it's big enough that you can actually like run around it a bit. That's solid. Wow. So you you can incorporate outdoor activities. In I can. Place. It's really exciting. Yeah. Um, and I, I was already thinking I might catalog the garden to like see what yeah. all the plants are out there because classic UK. You know, there's like one of everything from all over oh, yeah. the world from all the conquests. <laughs> so I, I can explore what's out there. Uh, um so do you in your you know sort of colonialist garden do you do you do you putter around do you have do you have a green thumb i don't um i do have these sort of like little indoor what are called click and grows so like um little tiny greenhouses basically uh but they're indoor the outdoor stuff i still can't handle and i think it's partly because um our soil sucks <laughs> yeah because it's mostly clay and yeah. so I think all the big trees, they've just been here so long that they got here before the houses got here. And so they're like, I don't care. My roots are deep. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. Um, I haven't yet been able to actually have anything survive that I've planted outside. Um, but inside, I'm pretty good now. Yeah. There you go. That's, How about that's you? Something. Do you have a green thumb? Uh, no, but my mom does. My mom has this fantastic relationship to the natural world. Where I mean, she's not she's not necessarily academic in her in her usual turn of mind, but she knows uh, an, a sort of amazing amount about the Latin names and different you know uh, sort of aspects about trees and plants and all this sort of stuff. And so I've I've always been fascinated by that. 
because I, I feel like I, I lack that um, and it's something I appreciate in her and people want to have it but I certainly I certainly have not yet developed that in myself yeah yeah I mean I mean it's a good time to do it yeah 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 I mean I so I just a couple months ago finished the Margaret Atwood trilogy the Matt Adam trail trilogy which okay. is also about a disaster um, and it's you sort of in this world for quite a long time and one of the main groups in it are called the God's Gardeners and um, it's all about sort of self-sufficiency, you know, self-preservation and being able to be independent from our normal social structures that keep us alive and fed and watered and all these things. So it's giving me some food for thought. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I do. I do feel like, um, you know, a lot of people are looking for sort of solidarity on Twitter and that sort of stuff. And I do think that digging into these books that sort of really look at the human experience during uh, something disastrous happening like this are another good and perhaps slightly undervalued at the moment way to, to find resonance uh, in the human experience with, with you know, people who have gone through and, and sort of thought about similar sort of situations, you know? Yeah, I mean, my repertoire of books is, I mean, every other book is a disaster book. So, I mean, it's always the end of the world in my books. Um, right. So I have, I've had much experience with this, if you will. Uh, it still doesn't mean that I'm prepared. Uh, <laughs> stuck with my loved ones, so it's not even that bad. But yeah, it's still, there's a weird psychological thing to, I don't know, to having to work from home rather than wanting to work from home. Yeah. Um, well, okay, so um, I guess let's, you, you, you sent out a tweet recently about uh, lockdown reading lists. So uh, before we get into sort of the sort of other stuff, uh, what's, what's on your lockdown reading list? Oh, on my lockdown reading list of things I want to read or things that I have read? Yeah, give no, well, I mean both, right? So um, give me your sort of like wildly... Um, uh, you know, sort of ambitious, here is what I would like to get into that I haven't had the time for the past 10 years, but this is going to be the time, whatever, whatever those uh, reads that you really want to do are. And then, uh, yeah, I'd also, I'd love to hear about books that, uh, you know, maybe sort of more like your desert island picks, that if you were going to be quarantined for a very long time on a desert island to survive coronavirus, uh, what, what would you, what would be the sort of best of list that you'd bring? So I think let's start with the Desert Island just because I can think of the books that I already have read because there's so many books I want to read. Um, but in terms of books that I would say everybody needs to read, especially during this time, I, I think some magical realism is a good start. So um, for me, Exit West, which is a relatively recent book, is it's a book about um, magical doors is a is a bad uh, summary of the book <laughs> but it doesn't give as much away so I mean basically what it is it's these portals and it's about refugees stuck in a conflict zone and it is an absolutely fabulous book and it is also mostly about the human experience of uh, isolation and separation and trying to well want a better life and sort of seeing where that takes you and you know the reality of refugees is that you don't know where your doors are going to go and so that's the, the fundamental premise of the book is there's these doors and they take you places, but you don't know what's on the other side. That sounds beautiful. Who, who's the author on that? The author is, let me just pull it up. Um, Exit West. It's Mo Mosh Moshin Hamid. M-O-H-S-I-N Hamid. 
Okay, nice. Love it. Um, absolutely fantastic book. Um, so that's a nice one. It's also just an, like it, it's it's about a it's about conflict, but it's a really nice book. Unlike some sort of that are too pandemic-y. It's the the problem is not a disease, and so in some ways it's nice to not think about that all the time. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, it's 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 much simpler to think about refugee crises than than, than pandemic crises, you know. Also, because there's sort of a different kind of end in sight, maybe I don't know. Maybe sure. not. I guess that yeah. could also no deriving sort of lateral insights from uh, from those. I could totally see that. Yeah, lateral answers, exactly. And it's just a beautiful book. I think everyone, even before uh, quarantining, should have should be reading this. Um, another one that I just read, which is, um, I would say probably now on my Desert Island book list, is oh, wow. The Glass Bead Game by Hermann Hesse. So this is a book from the early 1900s. And it was, so it was written before the Second World War. But it is, um, the, Hermann Hesse won a Nobel Prize in literature, and this was his last book. And he writes about the sort of world of academics and how it interacts with the outside world. And I think this is particularly going to be of interest to people who come from sort of some sort of ivory tower kind of environment. So whether they've been to a university environment, whether they've been to something else that's like a privileged school, whether they've been to anywhere where you can sort of, you feel like you're in a bubble, frankly, in sort of a bubble of privilege. And that could even just say, you know, if you take that extrapolate, you could even say sort of, if you're in you know, a Western country and you have relative wealth, you, you are also in a bubble. So I mean, that, that it can apply to a lot of different people, but it, he just writes in a really unusual way. It's very, it's, it's like you're having a really, really long and really interesting conversation with like a really wise person <laughs> who's giving you all kinds of life advice. So, I mean, I think that uh, the glass bead game, it's, it's really interesting. So it's, it, it plays in some unknown time in the future. And it uh, is sort of a retrospective of the sort of ultimate game, which is kind of like, like chess, uh, but uh, it's, it's sort of for intellectual pursuits. So all, the, sum, the sum of all human knowledge is in this game and sort of it, the beauty of that. That sounds phenomenal. Yeah, it, it's a bit more difficult to read. So unlike Exit West, which you can sort of breeze through quite readily, um, this is a bit more, you have to sort of like put it down. Also, because it, it, because of the way it's written, it, it's a little bit more intense to digest and it's a bit more unusual. And so, yeah. It, it, yeah, I mean, just like if, you know, your grandfather says something really wise to you, you almost need to let it sort of sit for a bit before you yeah. go back and continue the conversation. Awesome. Keep going. Keep going. I'll just pick one more. I mean, I could go on forever. Um, I would like you to go on forever because the recommendations are so good so far. So, uh, yeah, but let's see. Um, I mean, science fiction, there's... I, I read so much science fiction, but there is one trilogy that is an absolute world apart from what I've read so far at least which uh, I mean I've only just scraped the surface of the science fiction world because there's so much of it uh, but for me the three body trilogy is um, it's by a Chinese author and there's three books as you might guess and it is a what's called hard science fiction series which means that it's written by an astrophysicist and it is based on entirely uh, accurate physics uh, principles of astrophysics and physics in the real world and so you're learning 
but you're learning about the universe and time and wormholes and dimensionality and all these things but in an incredibly beautifully written way and so for me it i i can't think of any other series that has so profoundly changed how i look at the sort of reality around us and i've mm. long had an interest in astrophysics i've long had an interest in you know understanding the world and for me this still this was like a real like landmark book <laughs> series no. um so i mean for me three body is is definitely one of those but it is very long and it also there you need to you need to put it aside sometimes and say okay i need to digest what i just read um and i think at the very end of it the only thing i, I it's not really giving anything away but the only thing at the end of it is if you make it out these like however many thousands of pages um which is totally worth it do it is you come out the other end and you will never have appreciated so much being three-dimensional and that is all i will leave wow. <laughs> it is wow. oh genuinely oh that's amazing it's so good it's so good yeah um okay so uh, th- technically uh, this podcast is supposed to be about um not coronavirus necessarily not not reading lists but uh you know personal stories so Let's start to dig into that a little bit before we inevitably come back to um, the Im- impending pandemic doom society. Um, but so uh, yeah, so where so you you were you were born in Germany and you grew up in Canada, right? Yeah, I grew up half and half, so I have a really okay, unusual yeah. childhood. Yeah. So what what did that look like? Yeah, I so I was born in Cologne, and which is in Germany, and I. Uh, lived there well and in Bonn which is next door which is where um, a lot of embassies now are or or former embassies because that was the capital of Germany when Germany was separated and um, so I was was living in Bonn and I was going to an American school I actually went to an army school um, and not because my parents were in the army but because my parents wanted me to grow up speaking English and so every morning on the way to kindergarten and grade one we would go through a checkpoint into a military base. <laughs> so they would like check underneath the car for bombs and check our passports on the way to kindergarten. Oh, wow. And which is a really unusual situation in and of itself, I realize. And doing bomb drills instead of fire drills also is an unusual experience, which I didn't realize was unusual at the time. But uh, it meant that I grew up bilingual and because my dad's Canadian. And so that was always really important to the family. And um, from between the ages of six and 12, however, um, my parents decided or my dad decided that it was it would be good to a good idea to move back to Canada rather than living in Germany, but couldn't really get settled. And so my mom had to keep her job in Germany. So what ended up happening is that between the ages of six and 12, I spent in general one month in Canada and one month in Germany, one month in Canada, one month in Germany, one month in Canada, one month in Germany which, as you can imagine, doesn't work for basically any normal school. And so I had a combination of um, (laughs) homeschooling with faxes. This is how old I am. Um, I had to be homeschooled and like send back faxes. So they would send um, my dad, who at that point was mostly the one who was homeschooling me when I was away. Uh, They'd send me sort of things to do and then I'd send back the results. And then because I always did well on in Canada, the provincial exams, which are sort of the end of year exams, um, they didn't really mind for a while. And then I ended up going to a private school, so like a Montessori school, a learn at your own pace and your own way school, because they were more flexible to allow the sort of 
unconventional teaching because they already had an unconventional teaching style. And somehow in all of this, because I really like learning, I ended up skipping two grades. I almost skipped three because um, turns out this sort of being able to learn at your own pace just meant that I was like, go, <laughs> learn. Um, so, and I do have to credit my, my parents, especially my dad, actually, for giving me a sort of a real thirst for knowledge um, and, and supporting this. Sorry? Wissensdurst. Yeah, Wissensdurst, exactly. Um, and then after the age of 12, I moved in with my mom in Germany and I did my Abitur in Germany. So that was my first time at an actual German school. And I finished um, and did my sort of finished high school there and yeah. or A-levels, as you might see in the UK. And then I went to university. Yeah. And that was at Simon Fraser in British Columbia. Yeah, even there. So uh, because I had an unusual trajectory and I actually didn't know it, like my family is not an academic family. So my mom didn't finish high school. Um, my dad did go to university in some form, but at this point he wasn't a character in my life. So my dad and I are, are um, it's a complicated relationship and uh, he's not really in my life. But, um, and, and so at that point, he also wasn't in my life, really. And so there was no sort of guidance from family as to university issues. I actually thought I was going to study fine art. So I had my um, painting portfolio ready to go. And I was going to apply to, <laughs> I even still remember, Emily Carr, which is a painting institute, an art institute in British Columbia in Canada. And I had my portfolio ready to go. And I was like, this is what I'm going to do. And then last minute decided... No, I probably want to do something more brainy. <laughs> yeah. And so then I decided to study psychology. And part of the reason I want to study psychology is because of my dad, because I wanted to understand how people can have such very different realities from one another. So my dad's mentally ill. Um, yeah. And so I, I always um, wanted to understand what, what, what that was. Like, how does he see the world and how can people be like that? And so I ended up going to Simon Fraser. Um, but I thought that I wanted to go to the University of British Columbia, and I thought that they hadn't accepted me. Turns out that the letter was sent to a mailbox that we no longer used. So had I gotten that letter, I would have probably gone to the University of British Columbia, and who knows where I'd be today. Yeah. I mean, I did end up going to the University of British Columbia, but much later. Right, so, okay, so how did you get from um, sort of starting at Simon Fraser, which is a very small, uni small university, to getting into research. Did that happen there? Or did that happen later on? So Sam Fraser isn't that small. It's about the, half the size of the University of British Columbia. So I think it still has like 40,000 students. Okay. Um, oh, that's not very small at all. No, it's the second biggest university in British Columbia. And it's one of still probably the well, top 10 or 20 in Canada. I mean, it's not a huge university, but it is it's still decent sized. Um, it's just that it isn't as known for, um, it's just, it doesn't have sort of the history or the sort of Nobel laureates that some universities claim. And that is often associated with age. And so the University of British Columbia, both being bigger and being older, um, has more sort of claims to fame. And, um, but Simon Fraser is a great place. I, I love Simon Fraser. And it's, the whole set actually looks a bit like a sci-fi campus because it was designed by this guy who um, designs these really futuristic, very sort of uh, brutalist structures. And so the set, it, it was actually used quite often as a set for sci-fi 
films and like the X-Files were filmed there quite often and things like that. And so if you look, it's got this sort of like really big square in the middle and this really glassy sort of flat pool in the middle of the big square up top. And it looks really quite spectacular and it's quite often really foggy. So you come up and it feels quite otherworldly. It feels like you're in sort of like, like base camp on Mars. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's where I went to do my undergrad and I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it there. And I met great people and it always felt more dynamic than the University of British Columbia and because it was younger and it sort of prided itself in being younger. And it was known also for other kinds of subjects. And so that's why I started studying forensic psychology is because, um, because of the type of university it was, it was more applied. So more than sort of the fundamental psychology, um, it was actually much better at applied psychology. It was better at criminal psychology and things like that. Um, so, okay, so you got into psychology because of this sort of question about your father and what it means to understand someone with a different sense of reality. And um, was there like a first time that you saw something in psychology that really gave you an insight into that? And be like, oh, wow, this explains a big chunk of what I've been observing uh, and, and sort of it allows me to articulate it in a way that I, I wasn't able to do before. Yes. So there was um, a time in, I believe it was first year, um, where I, we covered, um, uh, we covered mental, mental disorders and we covered, um, in particular paranoid schizophrenia. And, um, I realized that that is exactly what my dad is. And it was really useful to contextualize sort of that within the wider framework of mental health issues and sort of, you know, what are positive symptoms? What are negative symptoms? And so positive symptoms are sort of hallucinations or sort of the way that I often describe it as is sort of bonus reality. So seeing or perceiving things that aren't really there. Whereas negative symptoms are things like depression or flat affect. So that's when things are taken away from your normal experience. And so for me, it was useful to um, understand sort of those aspects of reality and how brains just can really mess with literally what you see right and what you think you're hearing and so for for me that was that was a real turning point and um after that in some ways the the shackles were freed from exploring that part because i didn't go into clinical psychology in the end right, right. um and so i then discovered other aspects of psychology and and philosophy for that matter that i found really fascinating and so i ended up exploring those instead but it was definitely helpful to first get that out of the way, if you will, and be like, okay, this is what this is, and you know, here's how we can understand it, and um, yeah, but time to learn other things. Yeah, yeah, sort of gateway drug, it sounds like. Gateway, yeah, and I, I mean, I did also always have a passion for philosophy, so I had a fantastic philosophy teacher in high school, and she was just great, and I absolutely loved learning about learning about learning and learning about thinking and sort of metacognition. And I think that was also just like a long-term passion of mine. And so it fit well with sort of the applied nature of the psychology that I was interested in. Who were your favorite philosophers? Who were my favorite philosophers? Yeah. Oh, um, I love a good Sartre. Um, okay. I really liked, um, so for me personally, Nausea, the book was a really good, um, empathy exercise for oh, well, really? or nah, it was more like 
feeling like he got me the other way around. <laughs> um, oh, really? So I was so Naja is there's there's uh, so Naja for Sartre is this sort of perception. If I don't know if you're familiar with it, I'm not. Yeah, no, I'm not. So Naja for Sartre is a, is the perception that the world around you that basically makes you nauseous, and in the sense that he has these sort of attacks in the book where he sort of the, the walls melt and his world sort of basically has panic attacks <laughs> and he has these these moments where the world sort of melts and he goes into a, a slight existential crisis and he calls it nausea and that's why the book is called nausea is it's all about sort of existential ennui and sort of um nihilism and there is when, when i read the book i remember thinking wow this really captures um some aspects of my own experience of the world. And so for me, in some ways, again, it's nice to be like, hey, it's not just me who has these sort of brief moments of sort of where the world seems to melt around you and sort of disintegrate into, like, what even is everything? But then it, you quickly can snap out of it again. Um, and so I think that, again, there, there is sort of a connection with someone, even if it's someone in history who I you know, will never meet, who is you know separated so far in time but still we were experiencing the world in a slightly similar way um and then there's yeah, of course that, the classics yeah yeah like what okay so what's another classic um i mean there's nietzsche and there's um i mean nietzsche in particular was an inspiration for my book on evil right yeah you you quote him at the beginning right I quote him a bunch of times, actually, even yeah. though he was a, a an absolutely raving sexist um, yeah. or raging. Um, he, I mean, it's really depressing because he actually Sartre does this a bit too. Um, but Nietzsche's worse, where he just sort of goes off on after talking about how there's no such thing as good and evil, and it's basically this this construct that has been created partly by religion, the sort of idea of hell and. Um, and and he's, he's you know I'm with him I'm with him I'm like yeah this is good this is good, and then he goes off and for half of oh I can't remember which book it is, one of his books literally half of it he spends talking about how women belong in the household and it's ludicrous that they think they can be academics, <laughs> and I'm like oh Nietzsche buddy what are you doing? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was reading this on the airplane uh, a couple of years ago for the first time and I almost wanted to like throw down this book into the aisle and be like what have you done <laughs> <laughs> you broke oh. it oh but yeah but then i mean people like hannah arendt i mean everybody has their history hannah arendt believed in uh, racial segregation so i mean ugh, if you look deep enough loads of your heroes have a dark side um okay so i so a little sidebar here so here's something that i'm interested to get your take on which is sort of relationship between evil and art, right? So, so many of the great philosophers, but also so many of the great musicians, uh, writers, uh, painters, complete bastards. And um, so I'm, I'm wondering what, what do you make of that, right? So if you have someone who creates a great piece of art, let's say music or, or painting, whatever it is, and it resonates with a lot of people, and then that person turns out to have done some really fucked up things, what does that sort of uh, what does that do to the art for you? I mean, this this obviously touches on cancel culture, and um, I think that in general we need to. So I guess the foundation of my answer, there's sort of a layered layered answer to this. The foundation of the answer is we all 
could do with being more kind to one another most of the time and being forgiving because all of us have things that we're not proud of. All of us have um, these darker sides and also all of us have the potential to do even more harm. And so we would hope that the world doesn't just see us for the worst things that we've done. And so we should, you know, extend that to how we treat others. So I think that's the foundation of my answer. Then there's the middle bit, which is the sort of, it can just be really difficult to unsee someone's dark side. So, you know, once you realize someone's racism or sexism or harassment or their treatment of whatever, um, it can be very difficult to go back and appreciate their art in the same naive way that you did before. And so that's a totally different question um, as to sort of whether you yourself can get over it. And then there's the highest question, which is the sort of, should we get rid of or sort of burn or delete art or music that was created by people who turned out to also have a dark side. Sorry, my cat's trying to get in the, in the, one second. Just scratching. Hi, baby. This is my cat. <laughs> there we go. There we go. She was just absolutely trying to tear down the- What's your, what's your cat's name? My cat's name is Luna. Luna. Okay. That's nice. Which is also the uh, same as the cats uh, who guide Sailor Moon. <laughs> Do you remember oh. Sailor Moon? Do you know Sailor oh. Moon? Oh, hell yeah. I watched Sailor Moon throughout my entire childhood. In fact, a, a good portion of my childhood was spent playing with Sailor Moon dolls. Not even just watching the TV show, but I actually had like Sailor Moon dolls. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, so she she fights evil. I reflect back on that actually uh, on a on a not infrequent basis. Be like that's that was like I don't I don't know what to make of that. It makes so much sense in the context of of, of twenty twenty. I feel like I was kind of ahead of the curve, uh, and also that inclination is is the reason why that's where the curve needs to be. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I think about that sometimes. I was really into Sailor Moon dolls. <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, yeah, I mean, Sailor Moon was a feminist icon. Um, yeah. I mean, still is. I mean, I, I watched some of it recently, and I was like, this this is really good stuff. Like, Really? Is it is it really good shit? I haven't revisited it. It is, because I was wondering if it had aged poorly, like so many things yeah. do. And yeah. it didn't. I mean, it aged incredibly well. Like, in the first sort of season alone it's like she talks about you know we need to fight for our planet you know make sure you ask your parents to carpool like those kinds of things um she talks about abusive relationships and how you know you find someone who treats you right because at the end there's always a sailor says and it's sort of the moral of the story is and it's always a really great message that i feel like we should all go back and watch and you know, refresh because yeah. Sailor Moon. But then you know, there's that third season where she just goes into, well, we shouldn't be accepting too many immigrants into our country, and oh, does she? Oh, I didn't get that. <laughs> no, I, I don't. I don't think she does that. But uh, <laughs> you know, you never know. You never know. No, uh, but I mean, as, as as far as you know, a kick-ass female superhero kind of character. I love that. And her her that. cat is Luna. And so yeah. when I met Luna and loved her, and then I realized that her name was Luna, I was like, this is this has got to happen. Okay. <laughs> she needs yeah. to be in my life. Yeah. Uh, okay, and then so art uh, at a sort of societal level, what should we do with people who uh, have done sort of terrible things uh, but created great art? What, how, should we, how should we respond to that? Is I think we should try and appreciate it in context. I mean, I think it's yeah. just, I don't think we should throw out art because people have all you know, people who have done some great things have also done bad things because that's, frankly, I mean, it's a nice standard, but it's an unrealistic one for most people. And also 
I mean, times do change. And, you know, my philo philo philosophical heroes writing about, you know, really sexist things, that was relatively common sentiment at the time. And so it's not that, like, they don't live in a, you know, in a, in a bubble where they can be isolated from these kinds of thoughts. And so to expect that is unreasonable. Um, so, I mean, so overall, I think appreciate it, realize the context, don't sort of, I don't think we should glorify and sort of sweep under the rug the bad things that they've done. But I also don't think that we should throw out everything just because of some dark things. Yeah, you know, I actually really agree with the way you, you pointed that, especially the what you described as the foundation of your answer. Because I, you know, I guess one of my responses to it uh, has always been that, so if someone makes something um, and then it turns out that person's an asshole, it doesn't even have to be that they did, you know, something illegal and atrocious, but like they're just, they're just kind of an asshole and everyone agrees on that. I, I guess what that makes me think about is that, okay, well, so there's this thing that this person made and clearly a part of my soul resonates with it at a deep level. And that person is uh, sometimes kind of a piece of shit. That, that means that there is a part of me that connects in the most sophisticated, deep human way possible with a person who has these sort of negative aspects to them. And so, yeah, I guess a, a lot of, you know, my response to that, and of course there, there are nuances here as you really uh, did a really good job to describe, but yeah, I think, I think it should make us pause and reflect, well, look, there's, there's aspects of who I am that clearly line up with this person. And so that, that has to make me think about my capability for doing things that I'm less than proud of, like you said, and, and we all have things that were, you know, sort of, uh, that are, that are, that are kind of like that for us. And I, and I think that, um, that's one of the things that we should sort of be a little bit, you know, humble about, right? Yeah. And I mean, if we don't do that, then we also, um, I mean, it's not just art, right? I mean, whole countries. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm German Canadian and both of those countries have done some pretty terrible things. Uh, I'm right. currently living in the UK, which, you know, also tried to take over the world. So, I mean, it's, uh, dark histories are everywhere and whether you, sort of accept them or not, they are the foundation of sort of human existence to some extent, or they are a foundation of human existence. And um, you just, you can't get rid of it. You can't just wash history or art or any piece of human experience clean of that part of us. Okay, so I, I um, can kind of see that you have this fascination with darkness and uh, also reality, right? In different senses of, of reality. And so I, I guess I can kind of see how that ties into, I think, what you sort of initially really dug into in psychology, which was false memories, especially in the context of the legal system uh, and that sort of thing. So how did you uh, sort of get into that? What was the process like? What, was, what were the sort of steps there? Oh, man. So I went to Stanford University. Um, so let's go back there for a minute um, to my sci-fi campus where also um, Comic-Con was or is still maybe held every year. So there was one time of the year when there was literally all these people in outfits running around taking pictures, which was always really fun. Um, and I was studying psychology and I met uh, Stephen Hart, who is a forensic psychologist who was um, who I saw as a real role model. So I 
loved what he was doing. He was doing work on risk assessments and what's called the HCR20. So the, it's just risk assessment. It's deciding whether someone is high risk for reoffending. And um, so I thought I wanted to go into that kind of understanding whether people are going to reoffend. And he was my, and I talked to him and he said, you should do a master's because up to this point, remember, non-academic family, I didn't know what I was going to do. I was just happy to be at university. I was already feeling quite proud of myself. Um, as you know, 19 year olds also often do <laughs> quite pleased with your life choice in that moment. And then he said, why don't you do a master's? And so I did, and I worked with someone he recommended in the Netherlands. And there I explored more about some of the Maastricht, which is where I went for my master's, is known more for things like research on false memory. And so there I think it probably started to, to sink in a bit more, the sort of eyewitness experience, the process, the you know, threat to the criminal justice system of our faulty brains. And so I came out of that and I still was interested in why people repeatedly do bad things. So recidivism and or not bad things, but um, break laws and get caught. I mean, is really what recidivism is. It's, you know, if, if you're in, in and out of prison, it doesn't necessarily mean that it, all it really means is that you're doing bad things and getting caught. It doesn't mean that you're necessarily worse than other people. And it. So it was fascinating me there. And then I went to the University of British Columbia, and there I worked with Stephen Porter, who had done his PhD on false memories, on implanting false memories. And so I think this pathway sort of was setting me up more and more for applied things. And I ended up um, beginning really interested in sort of how our memories can go so wrong for really, really important things and can convince other people that things happened that didn't. And how can interrogators, you know, lead someone into a place where they're falsely confessing to a crime? And so I ended up doing my PhD on this because for me it was it was sort of the ultimate combination of a bit of philosophy, a bit of reality of like, you know, you've created this completely fictional past or this experience of a completely fictional past. And it has legal ramifications and can, you know, has real repercussions for other people as well. And so that's where... For me, I think it led me into this this particular space. Yeah, and then so um, a number of things happen. You uh, sort of bounce around a little bit and end up at UCL, University College London, where you are now. Um, you write your first book on essentially what you just described with the sort of misremembering and, and, and that sort of stuff. And then your most recent book on on evil. Uh, which uh, one of the things that I think is is really beautiful about um, uh, that is that uh, the sort of uh, as I understand your, your thesis is that um, it's it's an argument against essentialism in a lot of ways, right? That the, what we're what we're trying to do um, is not discern the good people from the bad people, but um, to identify the ways at which you know evil works in all of us, that sort of stuff. So. Um, how, right, so how, how did you sort of, uh, you, so you finished your PhD, you had um, s some interesting studies of sort of basic research, how did you build that out into the really interesting and, and wide-reaching career that you sort of had since then? I mean, a lot of um, coincidence and um, trying to create opportunities that allow coincidences to happen. 
yeah. <laughs> I think is, is probably the answer. I mean, I could never have predicted that I would write a book when I did. Um, I, when did you write it? What, what stage were you in your, in your career? I was one year out of my PhD when my book was, the, when the concept, the proposal for my book was sold. Well, wow. So I, um, yeah, so I'd finished my, my study on false memories. I was working at the University of Bedfordshire in the UK, which was my first academic job. Um, they were quite good to me in the sense that they also gave me quite a lot of space to do research and to do other things. And so um, I was able to sort of have a bit more time, frankly, which later became more of a conflict. So the problem is that as you, um, in especially in more teaching heavy universities, as you sort of stay there longer, quite often you get more responsibilities as is true for most jobs. And you end up um, sort of, I ended up also at my last post, I was the head of the department and that is that was, is incompatible with a career, if you will, on the side in science communication, and so that that had to change. But up to that point, I was still I had I had I still had enough time to sort of pursue other things and to do research. And my study actually came out because there was um, behind the scenes quite a lot of oh man, there's, there's a whole other issue of PhDs are um, and there's a lot of issues in academia and not the least of them is harassment and discrimination. And, um, there was a, a very toxic environment as part of my PhD, not just for me, but for a whole host of students. And it was a really weird thing to come out of because you don't know what normal is, right? You don't know what a PhD is supposed to be like, and you know, it's supposed to be stressful and you know, it's supposed to be, you know, you're trying to prove yourself. It's an academic exercise, but it's also, you know, networking and all these other things. But until you are out of your particular environment and have seen other environments, and so you, for example, are teaching or doing research in other institutions, you have no idea whether that was normal. And turns out my environment was not normal. And it was an entirely bro male club. Um, so like all of my committee, it was four men. It was, I mean, the entire sort of leadership, everybody was male, even though, you know, psychology is a predominantly female field. And it was, it was a very weird thing to come out of. And within that, there was also conflicts within the discipline. And so people, you know, have academic disputes and false memories definitely have a long history of academic disputes where there's a couple of people who um, usually uh, believe or adhere to repression and regression. So more Freudian concepts about sort of the ability they think of our brain to hide emotional or traumatic memories from us. And then the rest of the memory community saying, there's no evidence for this. What do you, that, that, that's probably not really how it works. And saying instead that some of these memories are probably false memories. Um, and this, it's, it's, it's this dispute that goes back and forth. But unfortunately, my paper got stuck in the middle of it. And so I made some very quick enemies um, without realizing I was stepping into this. And so my paper got published a bit later than it should have. And so it looks like my paper got published and then a year later my book got published. But really what happened was two years before my paper had been accepted, I'd had to withdraw it, I'd had to do a whole bunch of new analyses, had to get over the sort of personal and academic disputes, almost got scared out of academia altogether, was told that I was, I, I was horrible things were said to me by other academics. I'm absolutely astonished I came out the other end. <laughs> absolutely astonished. But here I am. And I ended up writing this book because a literary agent approached me after 
reading before my article even came out about uh, this article that I was about to publish because the university had run a small piece on it. And it was like page 56 of a free London newspaper that she read this on. And I met her on the Thursday that week. And I was signed with her by the Monday. And three months later, we sold my first proposal. So it was an like, absolutely unusual trajectory. And coming out of this craziness was a really weird place and time to do it. It's probably not the answer you're expecting. <laughs> so yeah, I, I want to dig into uh, sort of your response um, to the craziness. Um, uh, I, I can't even begin to imagine how, how difficult that must have been and, and things you, you went through. So, uh, but, you know, hopefully the prevalence is going down, but surely there are still aspects of that which exist uh, to a large extent in, in academia. So what, what were the things that you think... Um, helped you through that and can you sort of say well if other people are going through that this is what it really helped me to keep in mind maybe would would, would um, help them as a sort of a strategy yeah so I think that for the so I mean there, there are they are quite different the two main things that I think a lot of people face in academia that are uh, completely out of their control. So there's sort of the health and the stress implications that often PhDs come with. Um, but in some ways that's, you know, expected because it's a high pressure environment. Not to say that that's a good thing, but that's um, more something you can you do a little bit about at least. Whereas with, um, you know, harassment and those kinds of things and sort of structural sexism and or, or racism or whatever else you might be encountering, that's not... The, the, I mean, the problem is the power hierarchies, right? Is that there's this huge reliance on references. There's this reliance on working with other academics so that you can get publications, so that you can go and move to the next level, so that you can eventually get a job. And that has is just sort of absolutely um, a breeding ground or potential breeding ground for bad behavior. Um, so for me, um, I think what's... I came out with was just sort of, it wasn't even that it was, I didn't feel sort of really hard done by at the time. I was just really confused by what was going on quite often. It's like, why did they comment on what I was wearing after my PhD defense? You know, like those kinds of things. Like, what is it? What is this? And um, it was sort of, it wasn't extreme stuff, but it was lots of little stuff. And it can really make you feel weirdly objectified and, uh, just weird. And I think the the answer to how to get through that is to talk to other people about it. And so for me, I think I would have been in a very different position if I hadn't expressed this weirdness to others and said, hey, this is what happened to me today. Is this like, how, what do you think of this? And um, I think especially other to colleagues or friends, even if they're not, you know, maybe they're not in academia, maybe they're at home, just to get that sort of reality moment of it's not just me this is you know this is a weird thing to do or a weird thing to say or a weird thing to have happen um because that can really make you feel a bit less undone so i think top tip is if you can try and make an ally at least and communicate with that ally how you're feeling i mean in hindsight if i had been a more informed person and maybe if me too had happened slightly earlier or those kinds of um those kinds of things, I may have spoken up also to my department. Although the problem was that the department head was also um, 
uh, a complicated figure within the institution. So, I mean, it's, oh man, it's just complicated. Uh, and is that, is that something that you're addressing in SPOT, is it? Yeah, it is. So, I mean, SPOT is one way in which um, I'm hoping to help give people a voice to speak up against things um, that might happen to them in whatever context they're in. And um, particularly because it allows for um, anonymous reporting as well. So Spot is a chatbot, an anonymous chatbot online at talktospot.com, which anyone can use for free. And organizations, uh, we sell sort of a back end to so that they can manage reports that come in and respond more effectively. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, that was only part of the inspiration for Spot. I mean, unfortunately, um, many people have experiences with inappropriate workplace behavior. And so it's... You know, it's not far from most of our um, lived experiences already. And it's just that, you know, when you when you see something or when you experience something, if there's any way in which you can speak up, it is just going to be more likely that it will have a positive impact on changing the structure for future people like you or even for you yourself. Okay, so let's talk uh, about writing now. Uh, you sort of got thrown into a... A, a book um, uh, because uh, this literary agent reached out to you and uh, the idea was there and, and you sort of got fast-tracked on this process. So how did you find that initial process of writing that book? Did you really like it? Did you, did you find it hard to incorporate into your schedule? What, what, uh, what, sort of, what did that look like for you? It might be a bit of a rosy reminiscence bias, but I, I thought it was great. I also thought it was... Um, it, I mean, it's definitely one of the scariest things I've ever done in that, um, again, especially given the context of an already academic dispute, a professional dispute a little bit with sort of what was going on in my own head around sort of understanding the world of academia and um, sort of what I perceived to be the boys club at the time. And uh, yeah, I mean, writing is the way that I process my thoughts. That's how I come up with sort of how I feel about stuff and what I think about things. That's how I evaluate evidence. That's how I, that's how I make sense of the world. And I think that's probably always been the case. And this book allowed me to do that in a way that other people can come along the ride with me. And so that was phenomenal. And I got to, you know, I learned more in some ways from writing my book than I did for my PhD, even though the PhD was essential for, you know, giving me the the ability to understand scientific literature and to understand specifically psychological experiments and things. Um, I, I learned so much more because you have to learn how to, you know, teach other people about stuff. And that's sort of, I, I think that that concept of that, you know, if you can explain it to somebody else in a way that they understand, then you've truly understood it. I think that's a really valid thought. And so for me, that's what I learned, but I mean, also there, I was constantly uncertain. I had no idea whether I you know, was doing it right. You've no one for guidance, really. I didn't know anyone who wrote popular science stuff or did popular science stuff. So it's just like, is this right? <laughs> You're sending things to your editor and your agent going, maybe this? Um, <laughs> but somehow it turned out okay in the end. Yeah, so how has that process changed now that you've, you've gone through it a couple times? So I'm now writing my third book. Um, and I actually just came up with my proposal for my fourth. So there's a weird, um, yes. it's a little bit like when you do research. So for, for the scientists out there, you might be familiar with this, where you've sort of, you know, you're doing research and before you've even completed your research, you've already handed in ethics for the next one because you know that there's, you know, a staggered delay process. And so you might be analyzing data from, you know, a study ago, talking about and teaching about it, 
you might be, you know, in the middle of uh, recruitment for another one and at the same time doing ethics for the next one. And that's kind of what I feel writing books is like, except maybe on an even longer scale where you're sort of staggering, you know, where what you're doing and how you're writing. And so in some ways, um, I mean, the main thing that's changed is that although I'm still uncertain when I write, I am less so. I feel more able to have my own voice and not just, um, I don't know, I feel like I'm, my first book was a bit more cautious, whereas I feel like I'm getting, and maybe this is unwise, but I'm getting a little bit more assertive in my, in my voice and, and I'm allowed to just have an opinion and write it. And I don't, I don't know, I feel like that, that's, that's the main thing that's changing. And the process, I mean, my, my main process is that I take one to two years after I s send in my proposal to collect all kinds of thoughts in a really big note. <laughs> yeah. So whether it's anecdotes or thoughts or research or whatever, and I end up having this like 22, 25 page note uh, where I just have collected thoughts over time. And then what I do is when I sit down to write is I harvest these because in some ways the science you'll find, it's the sort of in between stuff and the thoughts and the questions that can be difficult to come up with on the spot. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so you start off with a um, sort of uh, a kernel of an idea and that becomes the proposal. You have a sort of overview, um, annotated contents. This is approximately what I'm going to talk about both at a high level and, you know, some of the, the pieces that I'm going to work with and, you know, maybe a sample chapter or two. And so you have that much sort of worked out for a proposal and then you spend uh, a large amount of time sort of in the research process and then that's totally separate from the writing process we might still go back and look up some stuff um, but you have sort of engaged with the ideas fully before you actually sit down to sort of make that prose as it's going to look like um, you know in, in, in the first draft and then ultimately in the, the later drafts yeah that's right so yeah so it's a sort of and, and a proposal for, I mean, most people don't really know what a proposal looks like, and I obviously didn't either until I wrote my first book. But I mean, um, at least the proposals in my life have been, yeah, usually the introductory chapter, which is shorter than the other chapters as well, but it sort of gives a sense of what the book is going to feel like. Um, a table of contents, and usually it's um, the, the first version of it that goes out um, before they sort of, almost like a teaser. I usually have a teaser where it's sort of a short summary of the book the title and a table of contents. And then if they ask for more, then we produce the first chapter and um, usually one or two pages of sort of the intro. So almost as if you're starting each chapter and they get a feel for like how that's going to feel and why that makes sense. That being said, as I go further into this process um, uh, and I have now uh, been uh, really lucky to have a couple of bestsellers and they've been translated into all kinds of languages and so now I get a bit more freedom and so people now um, request a bit less information before signing up to a book but I mean you still need to do, have your concept figured out quite fully even if you know your chapter structure changes and the research you find changes and everything else changes uh, you do need to know you know what's the main thing that I want people to learn from this um, yeah. and that, if nothing else you need to know that awesome um, yeah, that's super interesting to hear about, and um, yeah, I look forward to, to seeing those those new books as they come out. Um, so here's one thing that I want to get your take on is, how do you think people will misremember the coronavirus as it's unfolded, right? Because there have been a lot of layers of, um, you know, 
different parts of the world reacting at different times, different experts saying different things. People said, oh, we should have done X a month ago. What were we thinking a month ago, et cetera, et cetera. How, how do you think that when we look back on this, what we will remember or misremember will affect what we learn from it? Oh, inevitably. Um, it will. I mean, I, I would imagine that the narrative and our memories in accordance with that narrative will be different everywhere in the world. And so it'll be in line with sort of a, the outcome. So I think if you've had a good outcome, as in minimized you know, the spread and minimized the uh, things like death, then you are going to feel quite proud of you and your country and are going to have the assumption that you've done things right, which might be right, but it might also be luck. <laughs> People are really bad at remembering um, the huge role that luck also plays in basically every aspect of our lives. Um, and that includes for disasters. I mean, you the fact that you've contained something early and spotted it early, there's, there's, a, there's a big element of luck to that as well. It's not just, I mean, it's, it's people trusting you enough to go to the hospital in those situations and, you know, the capacity of your doctors to diagnose people. But it's also... You know, those people are in the, those, you know, right places at the right time and have the insight to go to a hospital or to get tested and that you have no control over, really. And so I think that there is going to be the people who come out of this um, the strongest who are going to perceive and remember probably that they were on top of things and that they were doing everything correctly, um, which we just need to be careful to take with a little bit of a grain of um, not skepticism, but with just sort of, again, context, sort of remember that it's not just decisions, it's not just, quote, good decisions and bad decisions, because you don't really know what, what is which until the end. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in terms of false memories, I already feel like I can't remember the beginning of this, if I'm totally honest. Like, I feel like it's yeah. been such a mess, it's yeah, been so totally. emotional, that, like, what happened a month ago? Where, what was I doing a month ago? I don't know. Like, I, yeah. I feel like I can't remember being outside of this house anymore. <laughs> <laughs> what is the outside yeah. world um, yeah um it's it, to me it almost strikes me as sort of like there's there's almost like it's the opposite of flashbulb memories right because so flash memories you have this really salient moment where you you discover something you find something out you see something whatever it is and you you have there's this whole thing around where you were in, in the context when you learned that and there's almost there's, because this has sort of has this property of diffuseness where it's played out over time. Uh, I think it kind of forms an interesting contrast. So you've got this really dramatic unfolding of events and um, you know, sort of really emotionally Im impacting information, but it plays out over time instead of in this one single uh, pinhead of a moment, you know? Mm. Yeah, and people are really bad at estimating and remembering time. So, I mean, this is yeah. something in general. So if you ask people how long basically any activity took, unless it's something they do all the time and so they know like exactly how long an exercise class is, for example. Um, people are really bad at estimating exactly how many minutes or seconds or hours or days something took. And so that's a problem we have anyway. And now putting that into the context of sort of how things unfolded and timelines, that's going to be very, very difficult for people to remember correctly. And I'm sure there will be misinformation and there'll be mis misremembering that just seeps in and um, who knows what that'll do with people's sense of self and sense of, you know, community. So sort of also yeah. perception of someone, you know, of people not having been there enough at certain times. 
um, you know, maybe they were there as much as they normally are, but it felt different at the time, or maybe you don't remember them being involved in certain ways. I, I don't know. I just, I, it will be really curious to see how it all pans out. But there's um, definitely an important thing to flag here, which is that there's, it's not of necessity that people will misremember what happened, right? And so, for example, you see the countries that are responding well to things right now, like uh, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore, and a lot of the infrastructure for a response to the pandemic was developed in the sort of aftermath of 2002-2003, the SARS outbreak, where they saw, oh, holy shit, this could really, uh, we escaped this one, but this could, could you know, really do damage to our society. And they developed adequate responses to that. And uh, I think that there were, you know, a couple more uh, sort of potential uh, outbreaks since then, which they also learned lessons from. And I think that so far, at least, if you look at the, the numbers in terms of uh, they are, they've had cases and they are in recession as opposed to in uh, sort of an explosion of exponential growth, that they have actually successfully learned from it. And whatever happened, they, they figured out what they need, what they were messing up and what they needed to, to do in response. Um, and so uh, I do think uh, there's certainly a dissociation here between people's personal narratives about how they react to it, which will certainly have some of this, you know, sort of bias of misremembering and, and the difficulties of, of putting together a, 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 an accurate timeline in retrospect. But uh, the sort of societal reaction to it does not necessarily have to be bound by that uh, inevitable misremembering and, and, and can actually develop um, a sophisticated response mechanism for future outbreaks um, if it so chooses. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I mean, a lot of that will have to do with, you know, good record keeping. And I'm sure that's happening worldwide in certainly many circles. And so ultimately, sort of experts, epidemiologists and people like that will be, you know, keeping track and keeping record. And so they're not relying on their memories, basically. They're relying right. on the data and they're just recording things and um, using, you know, tools to predict what might happen next. And yeah. that's independent in many ways of our memories, which is which is a good thing. And so they're not prone to the same mistakes as sort of the everyday person. Um, yeah. I mean, also barring all of the sort of basic memory stuff on a more fundamental level, it is also now still and will continue to be probably for the rest of human history an issue that we have a belief in a just world and we have a belief that bad things happen to bad people and that's a, and the sort of idea that disease can't happen to us or can't happen to me or can't, it can't get that bad here is sort of a, it's a bias that we just have. And it's really hard to get over that. And so even if you have all the data in the world, it's one thing to, you know, quote, remember pieces or think that you remember the last bad thing that happened, but A, our memories do fade. And especially of, even of emotional events, like it doesn't mean that it's stuck there forever and we will necessarily learn from our mistakes. On an individual level, we might still feel like this can't happen or it can't happen again or it can't happen, you know, in my small town or, and that's one fundamental bias. We just need to constantly remind ourselves that we have and that the world isn't just. And that's in some ways, maybe with this particular pandemic, what it's trying to remind us of, it's like, it doesn't matter which, you know, quote, developed country you live in or which level of society you're in, the disease doesn't really care. And it can happen to everyone. Um, but I think this will be something we need to somehow drill into our memories for the future of this can happen to everyone. It is literally happening to people who, you know, have all the money and all the resources. And, um, you know, it's 
don't forget, don't forget that this is happening now in 20 years when we might have a similar thing again. Yeah, absolutely. So there's one other thing that I want to ask you about um, before we wrap up here. And um, I guess I'm, I'm interested to get your take on sexuality uh, and specifically with respect to sort of scientific culture. And I'm wondering if you think that there's an aspect of uh, sort of academic culture that's out of touch with sexuality, even though it's something that we might sort of understand in, a, in an intellectual capacity. Uh, uh, and, um, you know, what, what you think we might be missing as a culture and that sort of stuff. So I'm wondering, yeah, what's your, uh, what's your sort of take on all that? What do you mean? Well, I guess um, I, I've noticed it. Uh, feel free to pass on this. I, I don't know, uh, you know, maybe maybe the question's not right but uh it's it's something that you're interested in right as in it's it's something that you talk about a lot um in sort of in your public presence like on your twitter and that sort of stuff and uh there are aspects of it that you think you know people should should understand better and i guess i'm just wondering to to hear more about what those are does that make any sense yeah i mean i think the I mean, a lot of so, so. My next book is on bisexuality. Let's let's disclose this first. Ah, okay, okay. Because that helps to contextualize um, sort of my uh, context and why I'm engaging a lot more with this content right now. And I am writing my next book about bisexuality, which I'm I realize is uh, a bit different than my previous two books, which were both related to criminal psychology, whereas this one is not. Um, it's still related to psychology. It's still related to identity. It's still related to sort of my fundamental question, which I think will be the main thing I explore through all of my career, which is what am I and why does it matter? And so I think there's a sort of identity, who am I, what am I, why am I, all of these questions that we all wrestle with all the time, I think I'll just be exploring in different ways. And one thing that you are, I think, is your memories. One thing that I think you are is evil, slash, uh, I think you have a dark side. And another thing that you are and have that's important to you is your sexuality. And certainly for me, that's the case. And as a bisexual, I, um, I feel like there, and I know that there isn't as much of a community, and there are a lot of people out there who struggle, including in the sciences, but in most aspects of life, uh, who are struggling to figure out, you know, what does it mean if I'm not just attracted to one gender? And I think that that is an interesting question, an important question. And a lot of people feel really isolated and can get really sad, have bad health outcomes, um, don't feel like they're represented, don't know where their heroes are, don't know, you know how to talk about it, and don't even understand what it is. And so this is where I think uh, science can also help. And there has actually been quite a lot of research on bisexuality uh, in general, but also within the sciences. And it helps us think about sexuality more general. And in some ways, my biggest question, and I think every bisexual's biggest question, is not whether bisexuality exists, because obviously it does, because I understand that because that's what I am. <laughs> uh, it's for me is, does heterosexuality exist? And I don't want to erase heterosexuality. But I do think that there is a really important and interesting discussion that a lot of people haven't had with themselves, especially if they identify as 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 quote, probably or entirely heterosexual. And so the, the question there is, you know, what does that actually mean? And how did you get there? How do you know? 
Um, you know, how do we even understand sexuality in general? And then how, what is the relationship with um, plurisexuality like bisexuality? So I think that for me, there's um, a lot of questions that I certainly have in general, but I also think that everybody should be asking themselves and we often fail to. And in some ways, again, the LGBT plus community is forced to engage with this question more because people ask you, how do you know? You know, when did you know you were gay? When did you know you were bi? When did you know you were trans? Um, all of these different things we know, we get that question all the time, but if you don't outwardly express that you're part of that community or part of that, you know, quote, other sexualities group, um, you don't get asked any questions at all. And I find that fascinating. And I want to ask those questions and I want to have that conversation with people. Um, plus, I'm always thinking about, you know, me as a kid and me as a teen and wishing that there were people out there who shared my experience, kind of like I connected with Sartre and Naja and I connected with, you know, uh, other, you know, Hamann Hesse and uh, as a grandfather figure and sort of talking some sense about the relationship between the real world and the academic world. I want role models and I am, would, I would happily be a visible person in the sciences for someone like me who's going, hey, it's not just me, there's other people like me out there. And um, that means that this is a pathway I can choose. So ultimately, in terms of engaging with bisexuality and bi-visibility, um, my main outcome is to make it clear that this is a normal part of human society and that scientists can also be bi. And that this is, I mean, in general, sort of sexuality and science do go together. And we don't need to be asexual nerds who are uh, cooped up in our homes, even though that is kind of how I feel right now. <laughs> it doesn't mean that that's what I am. Um, it's, you know, we're multifaceted and we're allowed to also be as complex and sexy and sexual and everything else as all other parts of society. Um, and so science is open to everyone. Well, so, uh, look, Julia, you've had such a fascinating uh, and inspiring career so far, and you've done, uh, you've experienced quite a good level of success, like you said, a best-selling book and that sort of stuff, but I can guarantee you that, that what you've seen so far is only a fraction of the sort of astronomical rise that I know you're going to continue to experience uh, and, and develop into, because, I mean, Wow, you're, you've got so many different aspects of, of what it means to be human that you're dealing with, uh, and you personally have such a, a deep grasp of them through art and, and literature and, and science fiction and your relationship with your family and all this sort of stuff. And it's just really cool to see and it's really refreshing to see someone who engages these objects of intellectual interest, not just in an academic way, but in a personal, uh, real lived experience way. And so uh, I know that that's going to continue to come out in your work. And uh, I'm pretty fucking excited to see how it looks uh, in the future. So thanks for taking the time to talk today. And uh, good luck being uh, cooped up with Luna at home. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for the conversation and thanks for the great questions. So I think that was almost certainly one of the most interesting conversations I've had to date on Cognitive Revolution. So uh, I found it really interesting to talk to Julia about the whole range of subjects that we covered. So um, I also was really interested in the uh, sort of conversation we had about sexuality and sort of also my 
inability to pose it correctly, at least off the bat. And, um, you know, as, as you can imagine, it's slightly out of my depth to talk about, at least in a sort of professional on-air capacity. Um, it's, you know, not something that we talk about usually on this show. And so um, uh, it was really interesting to hear Julia's take on it. Of course, I think that uh, it's really compelling what she has to say on it, and I'm excited to see the book when it comes out. But yeah, I thought that it was um, sort of useful to leave in my uh, sort of pathetic attempt to segue into it uh, that sort of came off ham-fistedly. And um, so yeah, I thought uh, this was a really interesting interview because Julia just has so much interesting stuff to say. And uh, yeah, we, we talked about books, we talked about literature, and I guess I'm just impressed by what I view as sort of the, the complete scholarship that Julia has to offer. She really is able to embody so many different kinds of intellectual interest, and I have an immense amount of respect for that. So uh, anyway, if you want to connect more with her work, you can follow her on Twitter or uh, go check out her books. And uh, you can also connect with me through Twitter, at Cody Commerce, or through my newsletter, which you can find at CodyCommerce.com slash newsletter. So thank you for listening, and uh, we'll be back with more again soon. Thank you.